Well, as you probably know, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and last week we took up John the Baptist's question uh, to Jesus. He asked, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And this week we will revisit John's question a little bit, and then tack on what Jesus had to say to the crowds after that encounter, in particular to the scribes and Pharisees. Well, again this week we are in Luke chapter 7. We're beginning with verse 18 and going through verse 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, that is the scribes, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this word that we looked at last week and we're looking at again this week. And we pray that this word from Jesus would be good for us, that it would build us up in faith, hope, and love, that the fruit of the Spirit would ever be kindled in us. It would move us, as we just heard sung from the balcony, to follow in the Master's way. We thank you for this grace of life you've given to us. We thank you for the privilege of being with you and learning your ways. We pray all of this, of course, in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, last week we asked the question, uh, of all people we would least expect to have misgivings or perhaps doubts even about Jesus, well, it's got to be John the Baptist. So why would he, really of all people, be raising questions now? And as we talked about among the Jewish people at that time, There was the hope and the expectation that the Messiah would soon arrive, and those expectations were rightly shaped by the Bible. So, for example, when you consider 
Jesus' first sermon at Nazareth, he quotes from Isaiah 61 and 29. And this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, the Jewish people knew this was a promise. They knew Isaiah 61 and 29, and they knew this was a promise of what the Messiah would do. That's why Jesus rightly quotes it and then says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So if you were to read in full what Jesus quotes from, from Isaiah 61 and 29, it clearly contains the promise of God's mercy, like what Jesus says in his sermon. But it also includes the promise of God's justice. And what's interesting is that Jesus clearly leads with the promise of God's mercy, but he leaves out lines like, and the day of vengeance of our God. And the reason for this is, we talked about this last week, so I don't want to belabor it, but the reason for this is not that Jesus cherry-picked Bible verses in order to fit them into the message he wanted to tell. And as an aside, that's always a temptation for pastors. Always to take a passage out of context or to twist it uh, or to ignore perhaps parts of a text, maybe especially when the Bible says something that's uncomfortable or that is at odds with some of our cultural assumptions or because a pastor knows what he wants to say ahead of time and went looking for a text to fit what he had already uh, decided to write. Jesus is not doing that. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, by the way that Jesus actually quotes the text and uses it, he's actually demonstrating how, how God always begins with mercy and only later brings judgment and vengeance. So God is long-suffering and patient and longs for the wicked to turn to him and find life in him, even as he does promise to deal with sin and evil. So it's exactly what you find in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which is arguably one of the most important statements in the Bible and certainly one of the ones that's most often quoted in the Psalms. It says this. This is God's own words. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. So this is God's own statement about his character. And he spends more words on his grace and mercy than he does on his justice. Even so, God is merciful and he's just. He's not one or the other, he's both. But God's timing for when he will bring judgment is up to him. And I think this, or something perhaps along these lines, is what John the Baptist most likely was struggling with and why he sent his disciples to Jesus asking the question. And the reason, again, is that his generation, John's generation, rightly expected the Messiah to soon show up. And, of course, to bring mercy, but to also bring judgment. And having endured under oppressive foreign powers, one right after another, you could understand why the Jewish hope perhaps, at this point anyway, tilted towards justice against her enemies. And at this point in Luke's gospel, of course, John the Baptist was sitting in prison for having publicly denounced Herod the Tetrarch for his marriage to his brother's wife. So in other words, he took his brother's wife 
right, which was a clear violation of Leviticus 18. And if you consider Elijah and Elisha, for example, as just models for prophets, speaking truth to Israel's leadership, even so-called kings like Herod, who was actually an Edomite, not Jewish, and thus a false king of Israel, well, saying hard things to, to Israel's leadership, that was part of the job. That's what you were supposed to do. So even as Jesus was proclaiming in sermons, liberty to the captives and setting at liberty those who were oppressed, I'm fulfilling this right now. John sat in prison and the Romans and the Roman puppets like Herod, they remained in power. So Jesus' response to John's two disciples, really his two witnesses, and you'll notice they repeat that question twice. They're doubling down on it. They want a real answer to this. They're, they're functioning as two really legal witnesses for their, their, their uh, master John. Well, Jesus' response to them was to challenge them to observe what they had heard and seen and make a right judgment on whether Jesus was actually fulfilling Isaiah 61 and 29. But then he tacked on, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And by saying blessed is the one, I think Jesus is directly linking to what he has already preached in the Sermon on the Plains, those Beatitudes there, which could be summarized like this. Blessed are you who have life in me now because you already have the kingdom and the promise of life forever on a redeemed and glorified earth with resurrected and glorified bodies and communion with me forever. But... Because of this, now in this life, you will often endure trials. Not always, but you will often endure trials, persecution, pain, and suffering. And you will very well may not see justice in this life. Knowing this, are you still willing to walk in my footsteps and be my disciples? Are you willing to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you just as I do? Or are you offended by what I'm teaching and how God is bringing his kingdom into the world because perhaps it's not meeting your expectations for it. So in other words, was John the Baptist above what his master was teaching and doing? Because everything Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Plains is what he actually did. Would John follow in the way of the master, the very one he had proclaimed as the Messiah, or was he offended by what Jesus was teaching and doing? Now think about it. You know, loving your enemies uh, is great. It's great until you actually have to practically love them. The kingdom of God is easy to believe in unless it seems like the kingdoms of this world are either winning or seem to still be wielding power against you. So we don't hear John's response, but we, we really don't need to, I don't think. John was a believer, a committed disciple who, in a moment of doubt and confusion, which, by the way, ought to encourage you. If this guy struggled, it's not unique to have doubts and to have confusion at times. It's completely part of being a Christian at times. But if this guy was a committed disciple who, in a moment of doubt and confusion, needed to be reassured by Jesus, then that is exactly what Jesus did. And not long after this, of course, he was beheaded for Christ's sake. And that abysmal end to John's life, I mean, think about it. Dying at the word of a false king of the Jews and a notorious sexual deviant. Well, that was not the end of John's life. And while I'm sure 
Herod's court enjoyed that moment in some, some manner and saw John as just a pitiful loser. Well, God saw John otherwise, just as he sees his people otherwise. Well, after John's disciples left, this is where we pick it up this week, Jesus then turned to the crowds and started talking to them about John. And, and presumably, you know, the crowds had observed this interaction between Jesus and John's disciples. And now Jesus wants to know whether the people rightly understood John and what John was doing. He says, what did they go out to the wilderness to see? He's asking that question. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? Reed? Shaken by the wind? That is, did they go out to see an unstable man? False prophet? taken in by any and all false doctrines, and in turn bearing false witness, just being a crazy man, a lunatic out there in the wilderness? Or did they go out to listen to a good tree that produced good fruit, an actual prophet proclaiming the word of the Lord to them? What then did you go out to see, he asked again, a man dressed in soft clothing? John wasn't dressed like nobility. He wasn't Israel's upper class coming out to the masses like the Sanhedrin might. And as readers of the gospel, now we already know up front from chapter 1 that John came from the Levites, both, from, uh, both with Zechariah, his father, who was a priest from the lineage of Abijah, and Elizabeth, his mother of the lineage of Aaron, uh, and that his father was serving in the holy place when he received the word about John, his son, from Gabriel in a way reminiscent of Daniel. So as readers, we know up front that John was set apart by God for this role, that he is indeed a true prophet. But do the crowds recognize this? Jesus continues, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And then Jesus makes the case that John was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament because of his role in preparing the way of the Messiah. And to be sure, all the prophets, in one way or another, anticipated the coming of the Messiah, but John, as the last prophet of the Old Covenant, was the final step, the last word before the Messiah, who is the word of God, arrived. Well, what did they come out to hear? Well, Jesus says, the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, proclaiming the coming Messiah, who John had the privilege of baptizing, complete with witnessing the coming of the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ and the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. It, by the way, that was not a private moment. That was done in public in front of a lot of people. So in other words, if they received John as the true prophet, then that means that his word about Jesus as the Messiah was true as well. And in turn, the new creation was inbreaking upon them. God's kingdom was inbreaking upon them. And as Jesus continues, in the old covenant, no one was greater than John. No one. But with the new covenant in Jesus, the person who is the least in Jesus' kingdom is greater than John in the old. It's why John himself placed his faith in Jesus, not in the old ways, and rightly understood that he must decrease and Jesus must increase. In fact, you see that whole trajectory in his life, that his ministry goes up, 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 to he has thousands of people arguably coming out to see him to where it goes down, and he dies in prison. He must increase, and I must decrease. And what Jesus means is that 
as great as the old covenant was, and it was tremendous. It was tremendous. And as an aside, Christians who look back at the Old Testament as if it's trash or not to be taken seriously or is irrelevant for us today, they do not understand what Jesus means here. As good as the old covenant was, it has been superseded by something far greater in Jesus himself. So, for example, there's no doubt in my mind that the tabernacle that was given and built according to God's own plan it had to be remarkable. It had to be remarkable. The temple built by Solomon that replaced the tabernacle in turn far exceeded it. But Jesus, the true temple, blows everything that came before him just out of the water. But that doesn't mean that what came before was bad or worthless, not at all. It simply means that something far greater is at hand. So, for example, it's the difference between taking in something magnificent, like, say, I don't know, the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon, and then taking in the one who made the Grand Canyon. And it's not that the Grand Canyon is trash, it's that someone who is far superior is now here, and if anything, the presence of God helps put the Grand Canyon in right perspective. Now, the difference between the temple and what the temple looked forward to are, of course, they're interrelated. They're absolutely interrelated, but they are orders of magnitude different. That's Jesus' point. And so those who cling to the old covenant in rejection of the new, as we've already seen Jesus warn against in some of his teaching, are not merely choosing an outmoded way of life. They are choosing death because God now has chosen to work through his Son. And if they reject the Son, then they're rejecting the true temple. And if they reject the Son, then they have rejected the Father as well. So the question then is not over whether this is how you know, God had chosen to act or not. Is this really what the Old Testament teaches? As if you know, Christians were just making things up or reading into the Old Testament things that were not there? No, the promise of Genesis 3 onward, and again, is the Jewish people recognized. The promise is of a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. So the question is whether or not Jesus is that guy. Is he that promised son and Messiah? And that's what John was struggling with. Now at this point, Luke gives us a quick aside about the crowd's reaction. That's why uh, it uh, should be marked off with parentheses uh, in your Bible. The people, uh, including tax collectors, in response to Jesus, declare God just having been baptized by John. So what that means is they not only agreed with Jesus that John was the greatest prophet of the old covenant, but in John they saw God acting to bring about justice through the coming Messiah. That even tax collectors, you know, men who were traitors to their own people and who engaged in basically legalized theft of them, that they not only understood this, but believed John's preaching and were baptized by him, which was an act of repentance and anticipation of the coming Messiah, that's pretty telling. It's pretty telling. And what makes it so telling is that while the crowds and tax collectors see God at work in John, and in turn Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees rejected John and did not feel any compulsion to repent and be baptized in preparation for the Messiah that he was preaching about. Were they curious? Were they curious about John? Of course they were. Did they believe John? Of course not. 
Absolutely not. And the way Luke puts it is important. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. For themselves. For them to accept John's baptism would be to admit that somehow, somehow they themselves were sinful and needed to repent. It would mean that they needed to decrease and Jesus increase. And as we've mentioned before, the baptism that John administered was, it's different than what Jesus administered. And while I'm not going to go to all the differences there, it's enough to know that John's baptism was kind of akin to how the priests would wash their hands and feet as a symbolic cleansing ritual, recognizing that they carried sin and death on them that, they need, that needed to be removed. It was a baptism of repentance, so to speak. And they would do that, that ritual washing of their hands and feet before entering the temple for service. And so John's baptism was a, a symbolic statement of the people's repentance of sin in preparation for receiving the Holy One of Israel, the true temple, and serving him. And by rejecting John as a prophet and thus someone who spoke the word of the Lord, the scribes and Pharisees, by implication, also rejected the one he proclaimed. And thus, as Luke says, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They did not need to repent at the word of a false prophet, as they saw him, and the false Messiah he proclaimed. And again, as Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so... The question is, who is actually offended by Jesus? Well, not John, though clearly he wrestled with what he saw in Jesus. And as an aside, as Christians, that's what we are all called to do at one point or another, to wrestle with what God teaches and with what he commands. And there's a certain sense, if you're not struggling with God, at least in a little bit, you've got to call into question whether you're actually listening, whether you're actually engaging with his word. Right? Even so, he ultimately, John, gave way to he must increase and I must decrease. The tax collectors and the crowds, they don't appear to be offended either. No, many of them are baptized as a symbol of their repentance, which was a public act that said there is something morally and fundamentally wrong with me that only God can fix. By the way, that's what we do every Sunday with a confession of sin. That is a public act declaring God's goodness and our lack thereof. But the scribes and Pharisees, they are above the so-called master and what he teaches. They are offended by him because they stand in judgment over him. And Jesus brings this out with what he says next. This is verse 31. He says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus compares the people of his generation and really, I think he has the scribes and Pharisees in mind as Israel's kind of self-appointed spiritual leaders who will lead the people astray. He compares them to children in the marketplace calling to each other, saying, Hey, we played an upbeat tune with a great beat, and you wouldn't dance. What's up with that? It was a good band. Well, if you're not going to dance to that, we played you 
A slow, sad song. And your heart didn't move. You didn't feel anything. You didn't even tear up. So it didn't matter what they played. Nobody was responding to their songs. And this, of course, is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for how the scribes and Pharisees responded to John the Baptist and then again to Jesus himself. See, John is the dirge. He's the sad song. He came as an ascetic, as a man fasting in sober preparation for what was coming in the Messiah. And of course, if you're preaching repentance, that's, that's not exactly happy talk. It tends to be sober-minded. He didn't live in palaces or wear soft clothes. He lived in the wilderness, and he was practically living out a Nazarite vow. And the scribes and Pharisees said, he's too extreme. That dude's a little crazy. In fact, we think he has a demon. And if he has a demon, then by implication, his word is not from God. It is from the devil. And the scribes and Pharisees would later make the same claim against Jesus, that he received his power from Beelzebub, that is, the Lord of the flies, a Canaanite deity. So instead of the promised son come to crush the head of the serpent, they called him the son of the devil. In the metaphor, Jesus, of course, is the upbeat song. And he came announcing the jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, the year when debts are forgiven and slaves are freed. And the scribes and Pharisees say, what is wrong with that guy? Who does he think he is? He's a liberal. He's a glutton. He's a drunk. He's a lush, befriending the absolute worst kind of people. God doesn't love or care for the wicked, at least not that kind of wicked people. So in other words, they're critics. They're critics. They stand in judgment over both John and Jesus, and like all critics, they are easily offended. Why? Because their expectations, their standards were not met. Remember that opening quote we had from George MacDonald? The primary principle of hell? I am my own. It is my standard that matters. So, for example, with a music critic, it does not matter what the actual music is or who it is performing it or how well performed it is. A critic can always find flaws, can always find something to critique. And by the way, this is the temptation for every pastor when he listens to another pastor preach. Always when I hear another pastor, I, I am tempted to think, that's not how I would do it. I think he could have ended it a little bit quicker, says the hypocrite, right? But in the case of the scribes and Pharisees, their fundamental heart disposition was that they did not need to repent. They did not need to prepare for the Messiah, not at the word of this crazy person, John, and so they didn't need to turn and find life in Jesus, even as they were deeply religious and committed to the true God and were looking for the Messiah. That's the irony. So even as they wanted the Messiah to come, they rejected Jesus. It's a very easy thing to do. And practically speaking, we can find this exact same heart disposition among Christians. And it happens when we put ourselves in authority over God and his word, just as the scribes and Pharisees did. And it's not as if we would actually say that Jesus is somehow beneath us. Most Christians know that's a non-starter. No, it happens when we find reasons to reject Jesus on some teaching. Or more often than not, <clears throat> excuse me, we either, one, find a way to explain why what Jesus said 
doesn't really mean what he said, or two, we ignore the teaching altogether or pretend that it doesn't exist at all. And one of the easiest examples of how this practically works with just one aspect, one aspect of the Christian life is with something we use thousands of times a day, our speech, our speech. The consistent witness of scripture is that our speech really matters. And it is our speech, among other things, that sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom as image bearers. And it's not as if you know, chimpanzees or whatever don't communicate in some way, but they don't write poetry. And they don't have like insults like, like humans do, right? Humans are uniquely different. Now think of it this way. The entirety of what we do here in worship is predicated on God's speaking, his word, and in turn, our speaking to him and to each other, our word. So Christian worship, including the celebration of the sacraments, which are considered visible and tangible words, is entirely word-based. God calls, we respond. But this does not end at the church doors. This relationship informs all of our speech all of the time. So as Christians living in the so-called Bible Belt, we know we know that Paul admonishes us not to have any vile or filthy or obscene talk among us. That's found in Ephesians and Colossians if you want to go looking. So we know we shouldn't make dirty jokes or cuss or be vulgar or, or what have you. And we also try to take the third commandment seriously. And while the third commandment is only partially directed at speech, and really has how we bear God's name in all of our actions in view. Still, we rightly think we shouldn't use the words God, Jesus, or Christ in any way that might demean God himself. Even so, all of us draw arbitrary distinctions, and they are arbitrary, between what we think is appropriate to say in church and reserve those other kinds of speech for other places, maybe because God doesn't hear us there or maybe because we just want to talk how we want to talk so it's fine to tell a joke in one place but not another and we don't think it's think twice about the fact that no matter where you go we are always united to the holy spirit and in turn are always no matter what bearing god's name and likewise we think it's okay to say geez or gah that's the midwestern version or dang it Right, all of which are attempts at legalistically getting around misusing the words God, Jesus, or damn it, while making the same intent. What Scripture makes clear is that it's the intent of the heart is what is revealed in our speech. So in reality, you can use just about any combination of sounds, even using very astute, multisyllabic words, to break the third commandment. After all, the intent between calling someone an idiot or a dullard, or an imbecile, is no different than when we use more obscene versions of those judgments and insults. No different. So in the meantime, we think nothing of lying, or half-truth, or gossip and slander, and we'll let loose like a fire hydrant online about what we really think, even as we rarely think tone of voice or inflection matters. And rarely do we stop to consider whether we have the right to speak into whatever situation or whether we should 
speak at all. And like Job's friends, we can't help but assert our opinions where they are least wanted. Case in point, I saw fellow pastors do this very thing the night after General Assembly was over on Twitter after key votes at General Assembly were lost. So if we take James 3, for example, and Proverbs 6 seriously when it comes to speech, all of us in this room stand condemned, and all of us are in need of repentance. And as my family can tell you, I stand at the head of that line. So it may be that you easily avoid obscene or vulgar language, and maybe you are even repulsed by it. But your tone, your inflection, your willingness to slander or malign or apply false motives to people, all while avoiding the big no-no's, it's appalling. Or perhaps you're the opposite. Maybe you're very sensitive to tone and think twice about what you're saying to and about other people, but you are careless with obscenity and don't think twice about it. And what you do, well, I mean, what do you care if someone is offended by whatever four-letter word? They're, they're just fundamentalists. We know about those people. They just need to quit being superficial legalists. And so, if we are to take John the Baptist seriously and in turn ponder Jesus' statement, blessed are those who are not offended by me, in the area of our speech, which, by the way, is a direct outworking of our heart and our heart's disposition to God, all of us must decrease and Jesus must increase. And the question arises, does the Bible's teaching on speech offend us in the sense that we don't think God's commands for how we speak should actually have to apply to me? And the reality is that the pattern of, of his increasing and our decreasing is true with every aspect of our lives, not just speech. Granted, speech is a really big aspect. So there's nothing in your life, not one aspect that is not ripe for repentance in some way or another. So think of it this way. I've only addressed the issue of what we say in regular, normal, everyday life. How about when we start thinking through loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you, both which often begin with speech? After all, to pray for those who persecute you is, coming, is something you, you put words to, either in your mind or you say it out loud. And of course, you could tell which issues are particularly ripe for repentance by how angry you get when you're called out on them. We get angry like the Pharisees and scribes because we're offended by the notion that we might somehow be wrong. And of course, were we to repent, it would certainly mean that we would have to change. He must increase and I must decrease. Well, Jesus ends by saying wisdom is justified by all her children. Just that little short statement. There's a lot there. I promise I got 30 seconds left. What kind of children does wisdom produce? That's the question. If Psalm 1 is to be believed, and that's the prayer I prayed for the prayer of adoration, it's those who listen to the word of God and walk in his word and in turn learn to make right evaluations by it. That is, they are children of repentance. So who in our passage repented? Who was offended? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let me pray for this.
Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us here that though we are perhaps often offended by your word, that that offense would be turned to change, that that offense might turn to cut us to the very marrow of our bones, the very depths of our hearts, that we would be in turn changed by you through the spirit, that we might be the children of wisdom walking in your ways. We thank you that this is not something we must do on our own because we cannot. We thank you that instead we have a Savior who is patient and long-suffering, who gave himself for us, and in his spirit is working in us daily to make us such children. We thank you in his name, again through the power of the Spirit. Amen.